Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about the value of brand. Hmm. Yeah, we've got a specific news item. This obviously is not a current events podcast, but there's a, a specific news item about uh, what's going to happen in the fall with higher ed, universities and colleges, and you know, are our students going to return? Is everything going to be online? And if everything is online, then what's really the value? Is the value proposition different? This was kicked off by an announcement from Harvard that they were going to have remote learning, but they were not going to lower tuition. So it was like, hmm, this sounds like a topic for us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, not experts on this particular area, but uh, certainly uh, have opinions which we're not afraid to share. It's shocker. <laughs> we have opinions. I think one of the things to maybe a good starting point is that when the internet comes for you, this has been true for a long time. So maybe 20 years, what are we? A little more than 20 years. When the internet comes for your industry, the middle gets destroyed. So the very highest end uh, is usually okay and continues to grow, maybe even benefit, and the very low end benefits. So you've got the 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 tall head and the long tail. The very extremes get stronger, and everything in the middle just gets gutted. So Harvard uh, versus University of Phoenix, right? And so I I don't actually know how much it costs, but I assume it's cheap. It better be because <laughs> it, yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, so and then you get the Harvards. You know, like my sister went to Yale, and that was like a major major investment it was it was mm -hmm. staggering how much it cost and that was 25 years ago so you know if the if, if internet logic holds true and these universities become digital primarily digital you know remote learning or online learning then it, it seems likely to me that there there's going to be a just a bloodbath in the middle uh, maybe state schools will have a different different uh calculus there because the government and subsidy who knows what will happen there but but in terms of private universities and colleges it feels to me like you're either going to need to be super flexible in your cost structure and be able to go down to as close to zero as possible to survive or if you have a super powerful brand at the high end then that is actually where a lot of the value is the value isn't in sitting shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of other harvard students although there was some value in that for sure uh, the real value is to be able to say that you graduated from harvard and if you can still say that in the future then that's still going to hold a, a lot of value well there's oh there's so much to unpack here mm -hmm. because you know you think about one of the things we talk about with any brand but with an authority brand is you have to unpack what people are actually buying. Yep. What's the experience? And so I just saw a quote this morning from a father who was sending a child to Harvard and he said something like, okay, I get that, um, you know, that they're not going to adjust prices and they're going to go to campus, but to go to campus and learn remotely and no discount makes absolutely no sense to me. So part of it is that what is the experience that you're buying? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm sure that's why Harvard, um, Princeton, and some other kind of second-tier schools have already said, we're going to have the freshman class there and the senior class there. Mm -hmm. um, freshmen, because you got to get them hooked. 
if, if you don't get them on campus and they don't start living that college experience, what's going to bind them to you? What's going to keep them from going to someplace else when, uh, you know, presumably this, this changes, when mm -hmm. coronavirus, when there is a vaccine? And that's the other question is how much of these changes are permanent? Right. I mean, that's it's, it's a fascinating, you know, I won't say case study because we're, you know, we're hardly going to delve into all that. But it, it is a fascinating look at how you position yourself, um, how you then brand that in the minds of your customers, and then, um, you know, how you price it. Mm -hmm. We haven't even talked about pricing yet, Jonathan. Well, let's go there. So it doesn't shock me at all that they didn't lower their price because they, they're the the um, impulse to imagine that they would lower their price is that well their costs are going to go down so their price should go down but they're not they don't price themselves based on their costs they're pricing themselves based on uh, keeping that luxury brand and that premium brand if they lower their prices that would be the, that would be a disaster so it, it's not about the cost it's about being able to say you went to Harvard and it's about mm -hmm. being able to attract the best students and attract the best talents and be hyper picky about who you let in like think about the demand for, for, well, really, you know, lots of colleges, but think about the demand for the, the highest tier um, schools. Mm -hmm. They have people paying to send in an application and, the, you know, they pick like what, 1% that they let in. And these people are like, please take my hundreds of thousand dollars. And they're like, no, 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 not you, not you, maybe you. So they're, I mean, they have the, I mean, these are some of the strongest brands in the world. Mm -hmm. Nobody's paying $100 million to have a building on the Apple campus. They, but people will spend hundreds of millions of dollars in endowment money to their alma mater if they are these really big brands. Like, these are really strong brands. Like, that's, that's nothing. Like, like, a line outside of an Apple store for a new iPhone is nothing compared to the annual pilgrimage or whatever you want to call it of mm -hmm. students begging, 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 and paying for the chance to apply to one of these schools. So if you suddenly make it cheaper, then I think that that has, it's going to have a negative effect on the brand. You need yeah. to What's be the, the most cachet? expensive. Right. What's the cachet? Mm -hmm. And uh, granted, you know, there's, there is a, uh, historically there's been sort of, um, that experience of, you know, showing up on campus, the excitement of, you know, I suppose lots of us have been there. It's like a transitional phase for most people. They're like leaving home for the first time and living somewhere else. And there's this energy of the this community of freshmen that are just like wide eyed and like, oh, my God, we all got in. Can you believe it? And and yeah, if that's missing, that's a negative. But that's not I'm not, well, I almost said it's not what you're paying for. It is one of the things that you're paying for. Oh, you're, yeah, you're paying for that for sure. But that may come back, right? Right. I mean, next year, if there's a vaccine in time for September 2021, they'll recapture that spirit on some level. Let's say it doesn't come back, though. Yeah, because I, that's the question is how does this change the, the industry forever? Right. So let's say it doesn't come back. Would you rather say, assuming that the assuming that this kind of certification model of traditional schooling uh, continues to have cachet in the workplace, mm. you know, so like if I go to Harvard, I can say I went to Harvard. And if I can say I went to Harvard, then I can get a job at, you know, I don't know, on Wall Street or wherever you want to get a job, then like it doesn't matter if you can't go to campus like if there if there's no campus option it's still the strongest let's just say harvard's right. the strongest brand it's still the strongest brand so it doesn't 
it doesn't really matter from a pricing standpoint that you don't go to, you don't live on campus or whatever. It just doesn't, it doesn't really matter because that's not what you're buying. It's one of the things you're buying, but the main thing you're buying is that piece of paper that says Harvard on it. Well, it's, yeah, it's not the thing that gets priced. It's I think not maybe the, correct. It's part of the experience of going, but when you then have that piece of paper and you go out in the world, it doesn't have any price value. Now, it may have a lot of networking value. It may wind up helping you and having a net present value that's hugely positive mm-hmm. later, but it's not priced into the work that you do. Okay. And let's talk about the networking thing for a second. And we maybe we disagree on this, but I don't see that going away. So you're still going to be able to network with your fellow students. Like I have, I have plenty of online courses and seminars that have live interaction with, um, you know, the members of the group and they absolutely do bond and they feel a, a loss at the end and all ask to have some sort of new community where they can continue to stay in touch. Mm-hmm. Like you can absolutely bond in a virtual space. I agree. I agree. I think it's it, it, it can be different. I mean, the thing that we don't know, because we haven't seen it yet, is whether the traditional university will bond in the same way online that they do offline. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't say, oh, there's not, there won't be any networking. I think it'll just be different. Yes, um, it will be different. Yes. Yeah. And arguably, it will prepare them for the rest of the world, which is also becoming more virtual. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before, the, yep. the whole impact of the pandemic and people working from home, it's just going to accelerate the virtual nature of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. So, I mean, here's here's the thing with the pricing. I think that the the, the bottom line with pricing is that it's their prices aren't going to go down until demand drops. And if they lower the price, that would actually, I, I could see that decreasing demand. Overall, that would tarnish the brand. So as long as the demand is high, they have no reason to lower the prices. What's, what's interesting, though, I wonder, is that let's just imagine for a moment that the move to digital stays the same no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't Harvard admit more students? I'm not saying suddenly admit you know, 40,000, but what if they bump their numbers by 20%? That is why the middle is going to get destroyed, because they will do that. It w- it'll be something like, uh, it won't be the, the main brand. It'll be a side brand, you know, like TEDx. Mm-hmm. And it'll be Harvard accredited, but not taught by Harvard professors or something like that. Or it'll be, um, it'll be Harvard courses, but no community. So it'll just be the curriculum posted video-wise. And you can pay $10,000 a year for that and still say you went, it, still say, you know, you went to Harvard X. And yeah. is that better than University of Phoenix? Probably. Yeah. So that's why the, you know, the, I don't know, uh, Johnson & Wales, just to pick a middle tier college near me, that's where Johnson & Wales will get annihilated. Well, that's a bad, just uh, that's a culinary school. So that's a bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, and I was thinking Boston they college. have a really good niche reputation. So I worry less about a Johnson & Wales. What do you think about Boston College? Boston College will get eaten alive mm. or BU. Mm-hmm. Like BU, BU, you know, and apologies to my friends from BU because actually my best friend went to BU. But when I was there, BU was, you know, and we're talking like the 80s and 90s this is a long time ago. But when I was there, BU was everybody's backup plan. So if you didn't get into Harvard or you didn't get into wherever you really wanted to go, you're like, well, at least I got into BU. And, you know, great. I'm not saying it's not a great school. 
but it's not, I doubt it's any, many people's number one choice or put it like this. I doubt there's a line out the door the way there is for Harvard. So, and you know, maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but. (laughs) BU graduates everywhere will be telling us how wrong Sorry, Mark. I know, but I went to Berkeley for crying out loud. That's not even a university. So, so here's the issue. If you've got the option between Harvard X for 10,000 and BU for, you know, a hundred, it's probably, it was really expensive back then. It's probably more than a hundred thousand now, but let's just say it's in that ballpark and they're all online. Which one are you going to pick? Harvard X is less expensive or maybe comparably expensive. And it's not the real Harvard, but it's, it's still got that uh, brand halo. It's like a line extension. Well, plus I'm picturing it on a resume and I'm not sure, unless it's, you know, the McKinsey training program, I'm not sure that recruiters are going to see the difference. They're going to see Harvard. Right. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly it. It's what happens with their, they've got a a B-school program that's like for people that are already working. So Mm -hmm. it's a different kind of a degree, but it's still Harvard. And when I've looked at people's bios, I'm like, oh, Harvard. Well, they did this, you know, special business course. They, you know, they didn't do it on campus. They did it in a different way. It's still Harvard. Yeah. And MIT does something similar, I believe. Yeah. Erica did a a B-school thing at Yale when she was at CVS. And it was like, you know, I think it was like a week. You know, and she went down there. She was like on, you know, on campus. It was not, a lot, but she's got the diploma on the wall that says Yale mm-hmm. School of Business or whatever name they slapped on it. And it looks impressive. And, you know, to the extent that people continue to be impressed by things like Yale and Harvard and Stanford and Princeton, to the extent that people are continue to be impressed by that and it has like a, a door opening effect, they can still charge whatever they, pretty much whatever they want for it. And then once things are, once things are, again, assuming things stay digital, once they are digital, then they don't have the physical scarcity of the campus to worry about anymore. And if they're careful about how they open it up to the broader population, they can do it at an acceptable price point, which is, you know, partially sort of a diluted version of the brand, but still the brand and, and take a big chunk of market from the schools that either don't do that or have a less strong brand. Well, yeah, I mean, as you know, and I mean, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, our listeners and, and their various businesses. I mean, that's what we're talking about is if you've already got a strong brand, you think about, well, okay, so if I want to extend it, how do I do that and still keep the core value of the brand? Mm-hmm. How do I do that? And, um, and it's exciting to think that, you know, you're the, the big kahuna and everybody else is trying to be like you. So it's, you can be the tail, you can be the head. Being the middle sucks. Yeah, that's a terrible place to be. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to kind of translate this into authority businesses or how people, you know, how did Harvard become the brand that it is? I, I don't know if, I don't know if we're qualified to do that. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I know enough to, to expound on that. I mean, I think what's interesting is how this is playing out in the media and how these different schools are going to be looked at too. And, and the example, I, uh, you said something about state schools at the beginning. Well, in the state of California, there's at least one lawsuit, if not several, against the university system for not lowering their prices 
when they went virtual. So I don't know what's going to happen with that, but you think about um, what's the public relations value of what they're doing? What's the long-term impact? And Harvard probably doesn't have any long-term impact that they have to worry about. Um, but Princeton came in and said, we're going to give a 10% price reduction which I thought was really interesting because Princeton is certainly well positioned, but, um, but they took this, this idea of doing that. The uh, school where I got my master's is, is RPI Rensselaer, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and I've been reading these different communications they send out to alumni, and they're making the case, now I'm not sure if they're doing this in the media, but they're making the case that, hey, our costs haven't changed. In fact, our costs have increased. We still have professors. Yeah. We can't get rid of the classrooms. Yeah. We have cleaning expenses we didn't have before. We have technology expenses we didn't have before. We need people to be able to um, get the technology running and keep the facilities clean. So they're almost, they haven't said this, but they're almost saying we need more money right. to do it virtually. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because here, here's the beauty of that. So like the, in terms of an illustration, so a pricing illustration, because I was going to say the same thing. Their cost didn't go down. They probably went up. So mm -hmm. here's there's three components. Here's a quick crash course. Three components in a sort of pricing equation. One is the cost to the seller. So the, in this case, it would be the university. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the value to the buyer. And in the middle, you've got a price. Well, hopefully it's in the middle. If it's not in the middle of those two numbers, then it's not acceptable to one of the parties. Uh, so if you have a situation where, so the situation we have here is that, you know, let's just use Rensselaer. They had, uh, by virtue of the fact that they had students, I know that the price was in between the cost and the value. So the, the cost per student was X for Rensselaer. And over time, they figured out how to make some profit on that by setting a price that was higher than their costs. And that price, you know, by virtue of the fact that students would pay it was lower than the value to the students. So now when you go virtual, and you're in this particular situation, like you just described, the cost to the seller go up, go up, and the value to the buyer, the perception of value has gone down. What that means is there's less territory, perhaps no territory in between those two prices where an acceptable price can be set. So if the cost per student go up to, let's just to throw out a number, cost per student goes up to $10,000 and the value in the mind of each individual student is $5,000, then that school is going out of business because they can't set a price that will be acceptable mm -hmm. and cover their costs. What probably has happened is that they probably had some profit and now their profit margin is going to get squished. So it's going to you know, be yes. very, very difficult to thread the needle with an acceptable price. So uh, what ends up happening there, they will... <laughs> well, remember, there's endowments here, which our businesses don't have unless you've got a trust fund, right? Yeah, yeah, they're going to dip into their endowment. But you see this kind of thing with um, with certain projects. It's not quite the same thing. But you, I see, uh, for example, open source products. Not usually, not usually a business. Although I could imagine it happening with a business. But essentially, the endowments are what ads are, sponsorships are. It's kind of like an endowment, where you know you want to put your name on my thing, and for the you know to kind of draft off my brand, you want to put your name on my thing. So pay me ten thousand dollars, and you can put your name on my thing. And the thing could be a website, it could be a conference, it could be an open source project, 
sponsored by, sponsored by, sponsored by. It's kind of the same thing as putting your name on a building at Harvard. It's a sponsorship, essentially. Well, I, I want to draw a line, though. I was talking about the endowments where it's just a big pool of money, mm-hmm. right? It's their, it's their asset pool. So it's not tied, typically it's not tied to a name of a building. It's their, you know, it's their giant chunk of change that they can use. Now, ideally, they don't want to touch it because they can use the earnings to that are thrown off and and also remember the stock market well it's kind of back up now but the stock market did crash so presumably their endowment value has gone down but it's they do have they do have options that a business might unless it's a very well-funded business they have options a business wouldn't have okay i was under the impression that endowments was money gifted to them by the alumni but right but they don't have to use it for buildings they people give money all the time yeah well, yeah. okay, but it, I'm sure that they get credit for it. Like it goes in some list of of ballers. Oh yeah, because that's the first person you call the next year to get more money. Absolutely, <laughs> right? Okay, absolutely. So yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. So yeah, you're. I, I was oversimplifying with the building label, but it's anyway. No, but that's important too. I think it's a really good analogy because mm-hmm. they've got the opportunity, like we do. We could take ads. Right. right. If we if we wanted to tomorrow, I'm sure their company is just lining up to have ads on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an it's an opportunity, and I, I'm not trying to make this sound like it's different from our businesses. I just think it's fascinating. It's this is such a lesson on why you need to be kind of the the you know you, you do something kind of cheap and quantity and and or you're a disruptor i.e like an amazon mm-hmm. or you're the one out front with with the really big label the big kahuna the one everybody wants to be the industry leader yeah it's like be amazon or apple yeah you know get the the very get the most of the market but at the very top or just get everybody like amazon mm-hmm. so you started off by with almost like summarizing the entire thing by saying, I think to paraphrase, you said, you know, what, what are you buying when you're buying a a degree from one of these colleges? Yeah. And you're buying a lot of things. Some people, I remember thinking, you know, younger, when I was younger, I would, I thought of it a lot more transactionally and literally. So like I'm buying smarts, like I'm going to buy, I'm going to go to a place where I can learn stuff that I couldn't learn other places and i'm and i it's like a self-improvement kind of thought yeah actually let's can we dive into that for just a second because i think it'd be really interesting so you went to berkeley you know a Mm -hmm. music school so what did you at the time (laughs) what were you thinking you were going to get out of berkeley what was the yeah i can tell you exactly so i was i started at uri so local state school decent school a good school but definitely a party school and it was a lot of fun and my grades were terrible and I went to, and I was like, eh. and so, you know, and I, I was like a self-taught guitarist at the time. I had been playing for maybe four or five years at that point. So I was like, eh, what am I going to do? I'm picking courses. So I picked a, they had a, a classical music program. So I, I enrolled in a music theory class and I was like, oh, maybe I'll check this out. And I got a literal 100 in that class. Like I didn't have, like I, wow. my, my brain was so ready for that that they would, I didn't do any homework. They would just tell me the answer to the question. And I would be like, oh, that makes perfect sense. It would immediately go into my long-term memory. It was weird. So I was like, huh, I should take more music. So I switched to a music major at URI and I was just crushing it grades wise. I didn't have to practice or do anything. It was just, 
my brain was so mm. ready for this information because I'd been trying to learn it. You know, this is before the internet. I was trying to learn music. Like, how does this work? How does this work? How, did this, how does this work? I was trying to do that for four or five years. And then I sit down in a class where they're like, here's how it works. And I was like, I was just like wide-eyed, like more, give me more. <laughs> so then it just became obvious to me that, you know, I'll probably flunk out of school if I didn't go into music, but I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't particularly care for classical music. It's great, but it wasn't my jam. I wanted to be like Eddie Van Halen. So, <laughs> uh, you know, where can I learn electric guitar? Oh, look, 45 minutes up the road. I've got one of the most well-known music schools in maybe the world. So yeah. I applied there, got in, tested out of two years of, of classes as soon as I got there and, uh, you know, and just did that and you know i actually am not that great i'm pretty bad <laughs> but um from a theory standpoint you know performance wise i'm not that great but from a theory standpoint i was like i was teaching classes to other students it was like it was so okay. easy for me so it was almost like a, to get back to your actual question it was a self-preservation exercise because i oh i left one piece out i'm the oldest of five and it was important to my parents that the kids got a college degree. So I needed to get a college degree and I didn't want to yeah. flunk out. So where can I go to get a college degree where I will do well? So I went there and I graduated cum laude. It was like, it was fun. But, but you just happened to go to one of the top schools for music. And right. <laughs> the, sla the slacker, and I put that in quotes because yeah. I know you weren't a slacker, but it's like, it's like that message like, oh man, I found my my perfect thing. I mean, the fact that it was so natural to you says that, you know, you found exactly the right thing for you. Right. Like, where can I put myself in a context where playing guitar 18 hours a day is going to be good for my grades? So, yeah. <laughs> and so what's interesting is you also mentioned your parents. So your parents yeah. had a dream for you. Right. And that was in there somewhere, whether, you know, it sounds like it was enough that you, you had, you felt you had to graduate from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I could have taken that same amount of money. And it wasn't that expensive of a school, but it was maybe $50,000 for two years or something like that, which is nothing compared to other ones. I don't remember how much it was, but it was a fair bit. And I, I could have taken that same exact money and got private lessons with famous rock stars. Like, like, I, mm -hmm. But that wouldn't have gotten me a college degree. I would have been a much better player for it, and I probably would be connected. And in the industry, it would have been better for me in many ways but it wouldn't have ticked the box next to has college degree that I felt um, not pressure from my parents, but I knew that they wanted us to all have degrees. It's that subtle 18 years worth of molding <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your psyche, right? Yeah. Yeah. I so, think parental pressure has a, has a lot to do with college. Yes. So what does that tell us? I guess it brings it back to, you know, the perception of value and it, is was would I I mean now Berkeley has tons of online stuff they've had on, a, a online curriculum for years at this point so what is that more or less valuable um in the mind of the buyer regard like the costs really don't matter no one cares about your right. costs buyer does not care how much it costs to make this can of coke no one cares but they know whether or not it's worth a buck to them in the current situation mm -hmm. so like oh I'm at a baseball game it's super hot well that's probably not gonna happen for a long time but I'm someplace where I'm really thirsty and here's a dollar, a can of Coke for a dollar. Is that worth it to me? Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Do I think for one second how much it costs him to make the can of Coke? No. 
It's or not that relevant. you could buy it in a grocery store for what a quarter. Yeah, but I'm not in um, a grocery store. Right. right exactly, exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and it, it's probably worth more than a dollar to you. They could probably get you to part with five bucks if you're hot enough. Right. Or in the grocery store, you can buy two liters for less than twenty ounces. Mm-hmm. What sense does that make? Oh, because you can't walk. You probably can't walk around drinking out of the two-liter bottle, and you want it right now. So I suppose you could. That's a good look. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's pull it back to the the subject because I could chat all day. Um, so the value of brand. Should we should we get kind of bring it all the way back to like what is a brand? Like it's a promise. It's it's predictability. It's some kind of. Well, how would you define brand? Like in the context of this conversation. Like, what is the Harvard brand? Well, boy, that's a good question. So to me, the, the and this is to me, because I think the brand is different in different eyes. Mm-hmm. To me, the Harvard brand is like a good housekeeping seal of approval for certain kinds of careers, law, yep. medicine, business. Um, those are the big ones to me. Yeah. Um, but I always, you know, interestingly enough, I always have said, uh, well, lots of people more smarter than I am and more famous have said, you know, there's, there's a a bottom half of the class in Harvard. So is, if you're in the 25th percentile of your class, are you better than if you're the top one at, um, at Berkeley? I mean, Berkeley on the West coast, are you, you know, so, so you kind of have to look at that. Um, but to me, it's around the, uh, a, a, a seal of approval an external, value yep certification yeah because mm-hmm. other otherwise it doesn't it wouldn't have any value to me personally right so yeah it's funny because when we were so you mentioned the first particular um jobs particular career paths because when i was at one point i was in a position to be hiring software developers and i couldn't have cared less where or if they went to college mm-hmm. all i wanted to see was their work i just wanted to see their work and you know, would it tell me something? It would, it would almost be a negative for me that somebody went through some um, rigorous higher education uh, process because I want people who can teach themselves. I want people who can improvise and who can figure things out. And in that space, in that space, because I think the real, I think writing software has as much in common with art as engineering. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe that's maybe I'm a bad software developer for saying that, but you know that's to me that is true. Certainly in a consulting space in a boutique firm that we were in at the time, uh, it was very much you needed to be flexible and adaptive. And if you were just like like applying stuff you learned in a book, it didn't really uh, that wasn't necessarily going to be helpful. In fact, whenever we did get someone like that they would overthink everything and over engineer everything and it was like look this just needs to be done quick and dirty so can you do quick and dirty and they'd be like no <laughs> so anyway long story short i think that there are i'm pretty confident in saying that there there are careers where that seal of approval is super important critically important and is going to ha- open lots of doors for you and i think that there are other careers where it's not important at all and maybe is a negative like if i had somebody come along and said oh yeah i'm a harvard educated computer scientist or mit i graduated from mit or rpi whatever it'd be like "Mm, you sound expensive and like an egghead i want someone who can you know it's like (laughs) it's as a developer it's not what i was looking for you know 
and I wasn't at Google. Google does want those like sort of like uh, traditional computer science students, the algorithm people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were just looking for something different. So I don't know. I think at the end of the day, you're you nailed it. I think that it's this good housekeeping seal of approval that says, well, this this person not only has dedicated themselves to all jumping through all the hoops that one needs to jump through to get into Harvard and graduate from Harvard. It's almost like um, this person has to be a go getter. You know, it's kind of like that. So for careers where it makes sense to be a go-getter, I suppose, then it would be really attractive. Or for schools where it's it's important that, uh, sorry, for careers where it's important that people have access to the best professors, really, because doesn't everybody have access to the same information at this point? It's It feels more like it's about the professors. I don't know. Yeah, it's... That's a tough one. I mean, it's the professors, but it's also the learning experience. I, well, I guess it's the prof- professors. It's who you're next to in the classroom. Mm. You know, if you're next to a really diverse, interesting assortment of people who think differently and the professor finds a way to pull all that out of people, mm-hmm. I mean, what a rich experience that is. I wouldn't care what the name is over the door. Right. You know, that would be an amazing experience versus something that's more monolithic. And I think universities are really trying not to do that, but where everybody's kind of the same. Mm -hmm. Um, I like the idea of of the diversity and learning different ways of thinking. Years ago, I went to an event in Chicago that was, um, I think it was hosted by, maybe it was the British uh, consulate, but anyway, it was for... Uh, alumni of the London School of Economics and I was not but a friend of mine was and she brought me to the party and it was fascinating because and I met some really interesting people but I also met some really weird people there were like (laughs) some people that were they were from Harvard and they had to tell me about their degree and they had to tell me about the size of their house and they Mm. had to tell me about the travel that they did when in their gap year or whatever they called it back then but it was like it was there there was this one-upsmanship which I really didn't like but then there was another part of the room that was fascinating they were mostly Americans who'd gone overseas to study mm-hmm. and it was about thinking differently it was about looking at the world as as a whole versus one city or you know one nationality it was fascinating mm. so it's I, I think a lot of us we put our own ideals on this there will be people who say well i wouldn't want to hire anybody from harvard they'd be a snob right and you know that's wrong you Mm. know but there are some people that would look at it that way so it's it goes back to what's the brand what's the experience that you're promoting and if you think about about it the admissions officers really have an opportunity to give students a flavor for what it's going to be like to be there yep and you just triggered a hilarious memory back when I was in Boston going to Berkeley, there was, was, again, before the internet, it was pretty common to see flyers stapled to telephone poles from bands that were looking for like a guitarist or something. And, Mm. and they would have, they would say, you know, like, uh, whatever rock band looking for a guitarist, no Berkeley students. (laughs) Right. It's the exact, it's the same kind of thing where it's like the, the Berkeley or the Harvard or the whatever, label lumps you in as a type so like there's Mm a i suppose a prejudice for or against the type and and it wasn't wrong necessarily i mean we were the eggheads of musicians by and large 
and you know like uh, like a punk band was not necessarily looking for someone who understood what like the phrygian mode was like who cared you know it doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so it's kind of like we were we were music snobs for sure Mm. so it's interesting to see that it could work for or against but you know i I suppose the big picture here is like a brand is going to bring that so it's going to it's going to when you're associated with it it, you know in this case as a student uh, or even a professor whatever you're associated with it it's going to have an effect on the perception of people around you and if that's a powerfully positive effect with people who you want to connect with or get hired by or hire or be a patient, you know, have as a patient, whatever, whatever the thing is, then that's where the value comes from. That's the main value to me. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's the long lasting value. And it, you know, yes, there's networking and yes, there's the serendipity of rubbing shoulders with people in a study group or all of that stuff is true. But I don't know if that justifies whatever, $250,000 a year or whatever crazy number that's, it is. It's funny you said that because that's where I, I was going to go next, is that if you're studying um, theology, not you know, let's say philosophy, that's mm-hmm. a classic. So you probably wouldn't buy a Harvard education unless your parents had the money to do so or you got a scholarship. You know, Would you spend $250,000 in all the student loans that go with that to get a, a philosophy degree? Mm. Right? right. You, you wouldn't. I mean, that was my experience as, as an undergrad, which is I had no money. I had to figure out how could I get the most education for the least amount of money and who could I get to either give me money or lend me money and how could I get through school as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have different, I mean, that's the beauty of it. You have different students with different objectives. So the philosophy person who goes to Harvard is probably looking at it in a different way than someone who's picturing law or med school mm-hmm. yeah and and goes into harvard i would think so cool so i i feel like if there's a takeaway from this i i hope that it is the intangible value of a brand so that, i mean that's what we're calling the value of a brand it's mm-hmm. it, it's i mean in a sense it's this intangible thing it's not as tangible as like oh i get to go to um you know songwriting class with Don Henley it, it's that's like pretty Ooh. tangible but you know or, yeah actually my Bonnie Raitt right so like like oh here's like a very tangible thing here's a person who's an expert who's gonna see like it's not about that it's it's partially about that that's in there somewhere but I feel like the value of a brand overall is a lot more intangible and it's this feeling or this positioning that it, it positions you in the minds of people who you're hoping to connect with or influence or have hire you or whatever the case is. To me, that's where the real value of a brand is. It's like this, the brand itself has value. So like if, if Nike, if Nike was like, we're going to do a chain of, um, I don't know, smoothie shops, you would have an expectation of like, you could probably picture in your mind right now what that smoothie shop would look like, Mm -hmm. even though they're, they're in the sneaker business. Like they, they could do that. And the brand is so strong that you'd be like, I probably, you know, if you like Nikes, you'd be like, I'm definitely going there. Like I could imagine what it would be like. I can imagine the, the experience. I could imagine that I would like it and I would probably pay a premium for the smoothies or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, versus a really weak brand. Like think of Jamba, what if Jamba Juice, I don't know if that's a weak brand, but you know, Jamba Juice came out with sneakers. What would you buy those? Like, could you imagine Jamba Juice sneakers? They'd have to be like hemp. 
<laughs> and super organic and yeah. 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 It would be a tough one, but yeah. Well, you know, it's also, you know, another way to think about this is it's all the more reason why as an authority you want a niche. Cause what we're saying is you want to be the head or the tail. Mm-hmm. So the more you niche, the more your opportunities are to be the head. Yeah. Don't you, cause you don't want to be the tail. No, I mean, not in our business. Cause the tail is volume and, and small dollar amounts It's the Amazon. Right. Yeah, you don't want to be the tail in our biz. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we're we're going for small, own your niche, and you can be the head. Mm-hmm. Tail sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In my biz, the tail is like website hosting or um, support contracts, you know, and it's just a race to zero down there. If you're yeah. unless you're going to create a big organization and leverage a bunch of hands, it's it's not a good place to be. Well, and I found when I had my um, my multi-employee business, you know, we were in the middle and we had a, a we were niche. We had a cool brand. But what was happening is we, we were too small to take advantage of some big things and we were too big to take advantage of some small things. So it, it was really challenging. And the only way to grow was to get bigger, mm-hmm. which meant, you know, in my case, I had to do more of what I didn't like. But it's it. It, it is definitely a challenge. And so you have to really position yourself well. And you, you just want to be the head or the tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stay away from the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that's probably enough about enough out of us. <laughs> Since we just use every ounce of knowledge we have about higher ed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.